0: Mike Shapiro is is our featured speaker today. He is Deputy Assistant Administrator for Water in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which means that he is the senior career official in the Office of Water, responsible for setting water policy under water quality policy under the Clean Water Act and um, and executing the program that Congress has authorized for the agency, including some high-level Rulemakings, uh, the uh, perhaps the most prominent of which recently is the Water of the United States Rule, which is drawing a lot of attention now in the courts. Um, that's the rule that defines the jurisdiction of EPA under the Clean Water Act and uh, has been a very contentious issue uh, over several decades now. So Mike is 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 a a a. An exemplary senior uh, public official, he's been at uh, EPA for decades and served probably in more senior offices than anybody else that that I know. Um, he's not only got the senior position in the water office now, but he had that same position in the air office before, he's had that position in the office of uh, solid waste and and uh, emergency response, uh, which is the Superfund Resource Conservation and Recovery Act office, and he's also held senior positions in the pesticides. So, my, so you you'll be hearing today from from a senior executive service official at EPA who's held senior positions in all of the four major program offices of EPA, which is really quite extraordinary. And Mike has held those positions because he is a very smart guy and deeply knowledgeable about environmental programs and unflappable and wise as a counselor and uh, people who are appointed to these positions through the political uh, process want somebody like Mike at their side and he has accommodated by his long and fruitful service at the agency so uh, with great pleasure that I introduce Mike Shapiro to you today. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much, John. I think that was one of my best introductions ever, so thank you. And uh, it's, it's quite an honor to be introduced that way, coming from uh, John Cannon to re- kind of uh, return the favor a little bit. I, In the introduction uh, of John this morning, it was mentioned that he was uh, EPA's general counsel, as well as an an assistant administrator for that office, as well as an assistant administrator for our, uh, I think it was called Administration and Resources Management Office uh, at the time. Those are two super high-level, super tough, super different positions in the agency. And I I don't know uh, very many people who could play that top role in both kinds of positions, uh, and, uh, and, and so John is one of them, and he, he did it superbly, so it was a pleasure to work with him, and when he invited me to come down here to speak, I was, uh, I was honored uh, to, uh, to get the invitation, and especially so because uh, the invitation came from John. Uh, of course, it, it also happens that my daughter is an undergraduate at UVA, so it also provided me with a convenient excuse to come down here and uh, see her uh, after, afterwards, but uh, it's great to be here. This is a gorgeous day, and um, I do want to remark, though, since uh, my daughter started at UVA, I've been to a number of events with UVA faculty and administrators, and, and this is the first event I've been to where Uh, We've gone like a whole half day without a quote from Thomas Jefferson. So I I, I, I think John will probably hear about that from from the senior administration. Uh, If if I had known that that was going to happen, I would have searched for an appropriate water quality quote from Mr. Jefferson, but but, uh, maybe afterwards, or uh, probably everybody has Google on on their cell phones. We'll probably hear from one before the end of the day. Um, And uh, this was, you know, when I thought about it initially as a a water rights conference, uh, I thought this would be a uh, a CHALLENGING PLACE FOR ME TO COME, SINCE uh, ONE OF THE THINGS THAT EPA uh, DOESN'T GET INVOLVED WITH uh, DIRECTLY IS uh, THE MANAGEMENT OF WATER RIGHTS ISSUES. Uh, WE you know, HAVE OUR HANDS FULL WITH OTHER THINGS. Uh, HOWEVER, AS WAS ILLUSTRATED IN THE uh, DISCUSSIONS THIS MORNING ON THE TRI-STATE CONTROVERSY, Uh, Water quality issues more and more are getting embedded into water rights issues because uh, it's been increasingly recognized uh, through a variety of mechanisms uh, that there's a claim on water uh, to satisfy environmental needs uh, that needs to be addressed in in the course of managing uh, water rights and and water resources. Um, So my discussion today is going to be mostly from an EPA perspective on how issues of water quantity uh, and flow um, kind of interact with the work we do and how some of the provisions of the water quality uh, programs that we manage uh, address directly or indirectly uh, flow related issues and, and therefore may, may generate issues that uh, water resource managers will have to incorporate into their plans. Um, so to, to begin with, the uh, water quality program that uh, we manage at EPA is, is largely embodied in the uh, Clean Water Act, which was uh, first passed in 1972, uh, to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's borders. Uh, and the Clean Water Act establishes an interim goal of water quality provides for the protection and propagation of fish, shellfish, and wildlife, and provides for the recreation in and on the water uh, wherever attainable. Um, and the interesting thing about that kind of high level articulation of a goal uh, is that it really isn't limiting to water quality. Uh, it's talking about a comprehensive vision of the of chemical, physical, and biological integrity uh, of the nation's waters. Uh, And courts have subsequently held that um, although, uh, and we'll get into this in a moment, there are some provisions in the Clean Water Act that seem to speak more specifically uh, to particular pollutants. Uh, As a general matter, it's not really rational to separate issues of quantity and quality so that they're sort of inexorably tied together uh, in any water quality management program. First, a a little bit of of quick background on the the Clean Water Act and and, uh, kind of flow issues generally. Um, First, I I think the general framework, many of you are probably very familiar with this, but um, the general framework of the Clean Water Act has kind of two principal thrusts. One is a technology-based thrust where uh, EPA uh, issues, nationally applicable standards for wastewater treatment plants for industrial waste and so forth uh, that were intended to really kind of establish a a basic level playing field across the country uh, and at the time uh, advance uh, the level of technology applied to uh, pollution control and wastewater discharges uh, to a, a level of best practices across the country. Uh, that was the primary focus of implementing the Clean Water Act in the early decades and uh, largely has been accomplished in the sense that uh, a lot of that, those the initial work of EPA and the states were to put in place secondary treatment for all wastewater treatment plants and a variety of controls on uh, other industrial point sources. Um, as the act uh, and the implementation have evolved, uh, there's been more and more focus now on the second major track of the Clean Water Act, which is the, kind of the water quality track. And in this track, uh, where states play a crucial role, um, <clears throat> uh, the framework that's laid out has states establishing uh, water quality standards uh, for, for their waters. Uh, often those are highly detailed and highly place specific. Um, uh, the states assessing uh, the whether their waters are meeting those standards, uh, and if not, finding making formal findings of impaired, impaired waters, uh, which under certain circumstances tr- triggers obligations to uh, develop and implement uh, plans, total maximum daily loads, uh, to restore the waters to their intended uses. Uh, that's the concept. Again, most of that begins at the state level uh, with uh, Federal authorities there to step in where states either uh, fail to do it, or in some cases where we feel it's it's not being done correctly. But it's largely uh, driven by that state level approach, and it is in that that part of the implementation where water flow issues get enmeshed with water quality issues uh, as this work goes forward, and. Uh, I, kind of like to sort of characterize what we're talking about by flow and water quality issues. Um, I think there are kind of three sort of buckets that one can uh, put the, the the issue of flow into. Uh, one is sort of basic, very basic fundamental um, uh, reality that most of the standards that we establish for pollutants, whether it, uh, it's um, uh, heavy metals, uh, other contaminants, ammonia, um, uh, uh, well, dissolved oxygen, which is not itself a pollutant, but it's uh, something that has to be in the water uh, in order for the uh, critters to survive. Uh, they're all based on concentrations, uh, uh, often um, uh, also modified by certain other conditions such as averaging times and so forth. But Basically, the basic water quality parameters that we implement are largely concentration-based when it comes to uh, physical and chemical parameters. Uh, and flow is a divisor, right? You know, it's, uh, it, it is uh, what has to be in the denominator when the numerator is the amount of pollutant going into the water. Um, so it's very natural to uh, understand that as, especially in situations of low flow, um, as the water amount of water goes down, even if you 're not um, increasing the amount of pollution, the concentrations are going up, and you 're going to be generating water quality challenges and that 's why many of the standards that are articulated are articulated I- I with corresponding flow conditions. so a very typical one would be uh, the minimum average seven consecutive day low flow, uh, which is judged to be a, a parameter that uh, provides kind of a, a, you know, kind of a base minimum flow within which a water quality standard has to be met. Um, so if the flows start going down, um, uh, there's less, you know, frankly, dilution potential in the water. Uh, and one of the ways of managing water quality is to ensure there's enough flow uh, in the water uh, that uh, together with the treatment uh, that's being done can continue to maintain uh, viable ecosystems. Uh, The second way that flow intercedes, and this is increasingly important in a world where a lot of our pollution problems today are generated by storm events, by runoff, um, is the uh, ability of water to transport pollutants. And uh, When you have uh, extreme storm events, uh, transport a lot of pollutants into the waters. Uh, A lot of the sources of our nutrient problems, uh, a lot of sources of our uh, pathogens, uh, a lot of sources of our um, toxic uh, components that are getting into the waters today uh, are coming not through discrete pipes but through runoff from streets into urban storm sewer systems or from uh, rural landscapes, uh, from farms and, uh, and uh, other uh, rural uh, locations into our waters, and that's driven by extreme events. If uh, the weather is getting extremier, uh, as uh, the climate forecast indicated is, it's going to create additional uh, water quality problems. But again, um, in this case, the the role of flow is as a, uh, a, a mover, a generator through erosion and other processes as a generator and mover of pollution from the land to the water. Um, a third way in which we think about flow, uh, and this is one where it gets more complicated for the Clean Water Act world, uh, is the, the very nature of the flow itself uh, will affect the ability of a healthy aquatic ecosystem uh, to survive and thrive. Uh, the, the timing uh, the relative to life cycle events of different organisms, of different flow uh, peaks and troughs um, has a big impact on that. Um, uh, the, uh, the intensity of storm events affect the, uh, the, the shape and dimensions and uh, habitat within stream channels. Uh, so uh, a good example, in uh, going local now in, in Arlington, Arlington is highly urbanized, but it still maintains a network of urban uh, streams that are weightable and, uh, and a, a very pleasant public uh, amenity if uh, you don't actually try to do something like drink the water or eat fish from the water. Uh, but um, uh, So one of the things I used to do was uh, take uh, my daughter's Girl Scout troops on sampling expeditions to, to our lo- some of our local streams uh, to do some basic water quality tests, and one of the things, uh, one of the basic uh, kind of biological tests you can do uh, with streams is assess uh, the uh, the benthic macroinvertebrates, which are basically the bugs uh, that uh, often attach themselves to the um, Stream beds or to the sides of streams, and they're basically the basic, you know, kind of foundational layer of the aquatic ecosystems. Um, and uh, so, one of the things you can do is you can go and turn over rocks and stuff and collect them and see how many different kinds of bugs you find and how prevalent they are. Um, uh, but what happens when we do it in my local streams is we don't find anything um, because. Those, stream, those streams are very heavily impacted by the urban runoff. And periodically, uh, you just everything gets blown out. The habitat for those organisms just gets completely washed away, together with the organisms. So there's no ability for them to thrive and maintain themselves. Uh, and on a larger scale, those kinds of things happen when water flows in a way that's different from the way the, the, the natural ecosystems have adopted uh, over time. Uh, so those are kind of three areas. The first two are very, I think, directly connected to the tools of the Clean Water Act. The third, less so. Um, and that gets into um, one other sort of important distinction uh, under the, the Clean Water Act, which is uh, the distinction between pollution and pollutants. Um, uh, and The Clean Water Act actually defines pollution fairly broadly as the man-made or man-induced alteration of the chemical, physical, biological, and radiological integrity of a water body. So that's actually a pretty broad definition. Uh, It basically says if something is going wrong in a water body, uh, you have pollution. You may not know, know what exactly that pollution is but it is an impaired water body. It is damaged. It's polluted under that definition. The definition of pollutant, however, is basically much more specific uh, and is driven by a long list, uh, which I won't read, (laughs) uh, of things that if you put in the water uh, in excessive quantities uh, will be bad for the uh, habitat or for human health. Water itself is not one of those things, uh, so water abstract from what's in it is not considered a pollutant, and therefore, where the Clean Water Act makes a distinction between pollution and pollutant, we have to be very careful about um, what authorities were bringing to bear uh, to 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 deal with that so if um, you know if you've got a if there's too much copper going into uh, a, a water body and it revo- results in high concentrations of copper, which is in excess of what's dangerous for the species that are uh, impacted in that water body, that's very clear. Someone's adding a pollutant to the water body, um, and the fact that there's too much of it is causing pollution. Um, and there are some very specific tools uh, you can use uh, under the Clean Water Act to address that. Um, If the water is flowing too quickly because of alterations that someone made upstream or because uh, the stormwater system is uh, engineered in a way that is creating shock loadings uh, into the waterways, um, it may be eliminating the organisms that you believe should be in that water body so you'll have pollution. You don't necessarily have pollution Attributable to a specific pollutant. Um, so, how does uh, how did this play out then with respect to uh, specific uh, Clean Water Act tools? Well, let's go back to the water quality standards, and I think this was mentioned this morning uh, as well. Uh, a foundational piece that has to be done by all states is to create and periodically update uh, water quality standards. For their for the state's waters, uh, and standards include uh, designation of what uses, including you know in some cases if it's a particular kind of fishery, the kind of fish that you want to protect, uh, as well as human recreational uh, uses, uh, standards that are protective of those uses, uh, and in in many cases those are uh, numerical standards uh, for specific pollutants or conditions uh, uh, in the water. Um, and then you have a, a bunch of additional things that get very complicated, but uh, all together uh, uh, constitute the water quality standards. And uh, so, what's, so what is the role of, um, of flow in water quality standards? Uh, and as I mentioned, since many of these are concentration criteria, there's an implicit role for flow in them. Uh, but <clears throat> there are there is an option uh, that some states have elected, and again, this was uh, suggested this morning with respect to Alabama i think um, uh, for states in their criteria to include uh flow based uh conditions um, ten states have done that to date uh and in I think almost all those cases. Uh, they're what, are, what we call narrative criteria. They don't state numerical conditions. Uh, they state general characteristics which have to be interpreted on a case-by-case basis for a particular body of water. Uh, so in Virginia actually happens to be one of the 10 states that has narrative uh, water quality um, flow-based uh, criteria. And Virginia's criteria read Uh, man-made alterations in stream flow shall not contravene designated uses, including protection of the propagation and growth of aquatic life. That's literally the entire standard, uh, uh, if you look it up in whatever the code is in Virginia. Um, uh, And uh, and then it's up to the state to uh, interpret what that means uh, in in particular circumstances. The, um, the next role that uh, states have, once they have standards, uh, is then to assess whether their waters are meeting those standards. Um, and the, um, uh, the way they do that is through various monitoring programs uh, and, and, and data gathering activities that uh, allow them to characterize, at least on a periodic basis, how their different bodies of water are doing. Um, and uh, that includes some measures that are just directly okay we said the, co- the copper concentration can't be any higher than i'm making this up now 10 milligrams per liter it's 20 in the stream it's clearly impaired we're going to classify it as a formally impaired water body um, or it could be something that is based not on a direct constituent but on a characteristic of the water's biology for example there are certain uh, indicators that are, are, are often used by uh, by EPA and states that characterize the diversity and quantity of organisms in a particular water body, and you can evaluate that against what was what would be considered healthy for that particular kind of body of water. And if you don't have any organisms, as in my case, or uh, you have fewer, or you have a, a, a range of species that are more associated with uh, poor quality water generally uh, that might be a basis for, uh, for a state to consider uh, a water impaired um <clears throat> the um and and now this this thing now gets into then what does it mean to have an impaired water under the clean water act and again states are free to be more stringent in the clean water act than what EPA can do uh, within its authority, but you know, just acting within the Clean Water Act. <clears throat> uh, once you find an impaired water, the um, if the water is impaired by a pollutant, uh, you have to develop a total maximum daily load that limits the discharge of that pollutant into the water body to a level that your modeling or other analyses suggest would return the water to its um, its healthy state. Um, and uh, th- that is, uh, and states have to, as they identify impaired waters, they have to submit the lists of impaired waters to EPA. We publish that, put it online. Many states have it online in their own databases. Um, and if you have that Need for a total maximum daily load be, to reduce one or more pollutants going into a particular water body. Uh, EPA's regs say you have a certain amount of time to do it, but you you know you can't wait forever. Uh, and so, at, at some point in time, if you fail to develop a t- TMDL, you're subject to suit. And there was a period of time, I think, in when John was around, uh, when literally states and EPA had to sign up to do tens of thousands of TMDLs across the country uh, in order to address the fact that they had all these impaired waters and weren't coming up with any TMDLs. Um, However, if your body of water is impaired purely by flow, not by a pollutant, um, that authority doesn't exist under the Clean Water Act to force a plan to restore the water, um, being kind of well-organized bureaucrats, we do have a box for those waters. Um, there, are different, uh, numer- well, there are different lists of uh, waters. Impaired waters for which a TMDL is needed is uh, something that goes on list number five. Impaired waters where you don't have to do a TMDL goes in list 4C. Uh, and it sits there because, from an EPA perspective, there's not much we can do about that. Um, and but we have a place for it. And so you can find what if you know if your state has gone to the level that Virginia might have, and I, I don't know if they have, of saying a water was impaired but not due to a pollutant, you would find that list uh, on 4C. Now, fortunately, in many cases, you don't have a clean either-or. You might have, uh, for example, a water body that's heavily impaired because the patterns of flow have been so altered that it makes it really tough for the organisms that are native to the area to survive. Uh, But it also, in part, that impairment may be due to sediment that's washed in by the water. So you'd have to do a TMDL on sediment and that gives you an opportunity to address flow uh, if you're doing it in a smart way. Um, <clears throat> uh, which kind of brings up a very interesting case uh, from Virginia, which some of you may have heard about, uh, the Akatink Creek, um, which is in Fairfax County in Virginia. Um, here, there uh, there's a small creek for a variety of reasons. EPA wrote the TMDL for this particular creek uh, under a, a consent decree, and we, uh, when and this was done by our regional office in Philadelphia, um, in looking at the nature of the problem, uh, they came to the conclusion that um, the impairment was due to sediment in, in, that was being washed into the stream uh, by stormwater discharges, uh, and the Technical folks in the region believe that rather than establish a standard for sediment which would be technically challenging and very difficult to monitor, you could achieve the same goal but by writing the TMDL uh, on the basis of flow limitations, uh, because if you limit the amount of water coming into the stream at a certain point of time, you'll reduce the amount of sediment and solve the problem. And they did some modeling to figure out what kind of flow restrictions to put in place um, the uh, so this was what we would call a surrogate TMDL, where the volume of water was being which is not a pollutant was being used as a surrogate for uh, essentially sediment, which is a pollutant um, the um, <clears throat> State of Virginia challenged uh, that uh, TMDL uh, on the basis that we were regulating water flow, which was not a pollutant, uh, and uh, it was a federal district court ruling agreed with that position. They basically uh, said EPA on, on its face was regulating a pollutant uh, and therefore um, the TMDL was invalid. Um, as things have transpired since then, EPA did not choose to appeal that decision for a variety of reasons, um, one of which being that Virginia agreed to write, rewrite the TMDL around the sediment criteria, so they are going to come up with pretty much the same solution we would, just in a slightly more difficult way. Um, and since that time, um, we've kind of left the field a little murky, as to whether this approach of writing a, a surrogate TMDL based on flow uh, is permissible or not, there are about 60 similar uh, flow-based TMDLs, mostly in the northe- northeastern part of the country. Those have not been challenged; those are in, in place now, and um, you know uh, the world awaits further <laughs> interpretations by uh, by my my program uh, as we go forward. But it it. Uh, and I only bring this up not because it m- may be earth-shattering, but because it illustrates the, the kinds of challenges we have in parsing uh, a complex law like the Clean Water Act in the diverse world of water quality protection and ecosystem protection that we face now and will will continue to face in the, pre- in the future. Um, a couple of other important uh, intersections for the Clean Water Act. Um, The basic uh, permitting programs under the Clean Water Act include a a stormwater permitting program uh, for larger municipalities across the country. They have to um, uh, have a permit uh, governing the discharge of their stormwater in order to uh, control um, uh, pollution coming from runoff, as I said, from many urban areas that's a major source of pollution today. Those can be flow-based. Uh, the, the restrictions uh, of the uh, TMDL language don't apply to these permits. Uh, so we can continue to, to write uh, flow-based permits. And one of the things we're trying to do is encourage those permits to evolve over time uh, to adopt green infrastructure-type practices where the, the goal is to restore more of the natural hydrologic uh, profile to the waters. Uh, through using more infiltration, uh, vegetative uh, cover, and things like that uh, as a way of producing a more resilient and healthy watershed as opposed to some of the the more engineered-type solutions uh, re- requiring uh, treatment and storage. Um, another, well, two other, before I close, two other important uh, components. Uh, the dredge and fill permit program, the 404 program, uh, which is... Uh, not a pollution-based program. It's for uh, uh, basically uh, discharging fill material uh, into uh, waters of the U.S. And that program requires a permit from the Corps of Engineers that's overseen by um, uh, EPA as well. Um, Under that program, uh, in evaluating whether or not to issue a permit, the... um, the agency involved has the ability the core uh, has the ability to consider impacts on the hydrologic system uh, a, in evaluating whether or not the permit should be issued or uh, more likely what conditions to impose on, on that permit uh, and a final uh, authority under section 401 of the Clean Water Act uh, this is one that uh, states get to use whenever there is a A FEDERAL PERMIT OR LICENSE uh, BEING ISSUED FOR A PARTICULAR PROJECT, uh, STATE AGENCIES HAVE THE ABILITY TO REVIEW THAT uh, FOR ITS WATER QUALITY uh, IMPACTS Uh, AND uh, THEY CAN ISSUE A STATE CERTIFICATION uh, WHICH uh, COULD INCLUDE OR IMPOSE CONDITIONS uh, ON THAT PARTICULAR ACTIVITY uh, EVEN THOUGH IT'S A FEDERALLY uh, ISSUED PERMIT. Uh, STATES CAN INCLUDE FLOW AS A CONDITION FOR A FEDERAL PERMIT OR LICENSE, EVEN IF THEY DON'T HAVE FLOW CRITERIA IN THEIR WATER QUALITY STANDARDS. SO IT'S AN IMPORTANT TOOL. Uh, AGAIN, IT APPLIES TO FEDERALLY LICENSED OR PERMITTED uh, PROJECTS, BUT IT IS AN IMPORTANT TOOL THAT STATES HAVE uh, TO ADDRESS PERHAPS FLOW-RELATED ISSUES ASSOCIATED WITH uh, PARTICULAR uh, ACTIVITIES. so I, I think that sort of covers, a sort of high level the, the landscape of, of flow in the Clean Water Act. Uh, to me, the, the the kind of fundamental message coming out of this is something I think um, a number of the speakers this morning also mentioned is that uh, you know water resource and water quality management in this era of increasing stresses on our water resources, uh, increasing demands, increasing scientific knowledge. Uh, that we now have about what it takes to maintain healthy ecosystems um, is really not susceptible to a siloed approach. Uh, I think increasingly water resource and water quality managers are going to be working together to try to accomplish joint solutions uh, that allow us to continue to um, utilize our water resources effectively both for uh, protecting and supporting uh, human activity uh, as well as uh, the ecosystems that uh, we depend on. Thank you.